Hi everyone, it's Vicki Vasileka from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. In 2017, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology came out with a focused update of their 2014 guideline on the management of patients with valvular heart disease. And in regards to anticoagulation after TAVR, it stated that anticoagulation with a vitamin K antagonist to achieve an INR of 2.5 may be reasonable for at least three months after TAVR in patients at low risk of bleeding. But do note that this is only a 2B recommendation and that this recommendation was actually based off of non-randomized studies that demonstrated the occurrence of valve thrombosis after TAVR based on reduced leaflet motion found on cardiac CT. And I also want to note that this update does not provide any guidance in regards to how to manage antithrombotic therapy, specifically in patients who already may have an indication for dual antiplatelet therapy, such as TAVR or a recent cardiac stent, except that it is reasonable for three months in patients who are, who are at low risk for bleeding. So that same year, the European Society of Cardiology and the European Association of Cardiothoracic Surgery also came up with their own update on the valvular, their valvular heart disease guidelines. But in this update, they stated that observational findings suggest that anticoagulant therapy reduces the incidence of subclinical thrombosis compared with dual antiplatelet therapy. The results of ongoing dedicated trials are needed to improve evidence in this field. So unlike the AHA and ACC guidelines, ESE did not provide any specific recommendation on whether or not we should be anticoagulating these patients, but that it is this is something that at least um, needs to be studied more. Okay, so in regards to prosthetic valve thrombosis, this occurs when thrombus formation forms on prosthetic structures of the prosthetic valve, and that can lead to dysfunction of the valve with or without systemic embolism. So all prosthetic valves are thrombogenic to some degree with mechanical valves having the highest risk. Here on the left chart, you can see the estimated annual rates of valve thromboses for surgical mechanical valves, surgical bioprosthetic valves, as well as percutaneous or transcatheter aortic valves. I wanna point out though, these are just reported rates and that they are highly variable depending what study you look at. But regardless, all of these reported rates most likely underestimates the true incidence because routine imaging is not performed typically in patients who are asymptomatic. However, generally, in terms of all prosthetic valve thrombosis, it's thought that valves that are in the mitral position as opposed to the aortic position have a higher risk for thrombosis if they're right-sided as opposed to left-sided, if they're implanted within three months versus long-term, and then finally, if a patient has subtherapeutic or no anticoagulation. In general, there is a higher risk for valve thrombosis. So now, moving into transcatheter heart valve thrombosis specifically, um, heart valve thrombo transcatheter heart valve thrombosis can be suspected when patients present with valve dysfunction. So aortic valve dysfunction usually presents with new onset heart failure symptoms, and this can be um, easily found on TTE or transthoracic echocardiogram. 
and the proposed diagnostic criteria for aortic valve dysfunction on TTE is a mean aortic pressure gradient greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury, an aortic valve area less than 1.2 centimeters squared, peak velocity greater than or equal to three meters per second, or having moderate severe valve regurgitation. And then heart valve thrombosis can be suspected depending on a patient's response to anticoagulation therapy. If a mobile mass is detected on the valve that is suspicious of thrombus and in the absence of any signs of infection. And this can be detected on TTE, TEE or transesophageal echocardiogram or CTA, which is your computed tomographic angiography. So hypoattenuated leaflet thickening, sometimes referred to as HALT in the literature, with or without hypotenuation affecting leaflet motion are phenomena that can be found on CTA or TEE. This phenomena has been associated with an increased risk of stroke. It's more commonly found in patients who are not anticoagulated. And therapeutic anticoagulation is associated with resolution of these abnormal leaflet findings. And so it's thought that hypoattenuated leaflet thickening or reduced leaflet motion are surrogate markers for valve thrombosis. So in terms of transcatheter heart valve thrombosis, it can range from either subclinical or clinical. Subclinical heart valve thrombosis or subclinical leaflet thrombosis, what's more, that's what it's more commonly termed, is when patients have reduced leaflet motion or hypoattenuated leaflet thickening on imaging, but they are asymptomatic, meaning they're not presenting with any symptoms of valvular dysfunction, such as heart failure symptoms. Subclinical leaflet thrombosis is far more common, but it's really unknown if this really affects or patients who have this have worse outcomes. Clinical leaflet thrombosis means patients are symptomatic, meaning that thrombus has actually caused valve disruption, and so now your patient will be presenting with heart failure symptoms. This is very rare, but it is associated with poor outcomes. So taking a step back, the take-home points from these last two slides are really patients who have reduced leaflet motion found on imaging but are asymptomatic. Those are thought to be surrogate markers for subclinical leaflet thrombosis. And if a patient has subclinical leaflet thrombosis, potentially that can develop into clinical leaflet thrombosis and lead to an increased risk of stroke, valve obstruction with heart failure, or reduced long-term valve durability. Okay, so what are some risk factors for TAVR thrombosis? Of course, TAVR is still relatively new, and so we don't know for sure, but this was a study that was published in 2016. It was a single-center study that analyzed 460 patients who undergone TAVR and looked, to, and looked for risk factors for thrombosis. In regards to pre-TAVR baseline characteristics, they found that patients who were male and had a GFR less than 30 were at significantly higher risk for TAVR thrombosis at one year. Interestingly enough, they found patients who had atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation appeared to be protective, meaning those who had atrial fibrillation were significantly at, or had a significantly lower incidence of valve thrombosis at one year. In regards to procedural characteristics, 
So patients who had a larger valve size, larger valve size of 29 millimeters, when using the 23 millimeter valve as a reference, these patients were also at higher risk, a significantly higher risk for valve thrombosis at one year. And not surprisingly, not uh, patients who were ha didn't have a prescription for warfarin on discharge for one to three months were also at significantly higher risk for thrombosis at one year. And I want to point out here, they also found that patients um, at one to three month follow-up, patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 35% were also twice as likely to have valve thrombosis, although this was not statistically significant based on this p-value, but it is something I think is important and it is a trend. And um, as patients have, when patients have low ejection fractions, they typically have very low flow. And so theoretically that does increase your risk for thrombosis generally. However, all of the risk factors that were statistically significant were put into a multivariable analysis in this study. And what they found was that valve size, as well as not no warfarin on discharge, were the only two predictors that, or the only risk factors that were actually predictive of valve thrombosis at one year. Okay, so the Resolve and Savory registries were both prospective single center registries that looked to evaluate reduced leaflet motion on imaging in patients post-surgical aortic valve replacements and TAVR. Within both of these registries, there were a total of 58 patients who were found to have reduced leaflet motion and had follow-up imaging three months later. And I wanna point out, although um, these registries included both surgical aortic valves as well as TAVR, majority of the patients in this section were TAVR patients. So as you can see, of these 58 patients, 22 of them did not receive any anticoagulation. And three months later, what they found was that 20 of these patients, or 91% of this, this side, had reduced leaflet motion that either persisted or worsened. And there were only two patients who actually had improvement in their leaflet motion. 36 of the 58 patients were, were anticoagulated for three months. 24 of them received warfarin and 12 of them put on a DOAC. And what they found was that 30 or 100% of these patients had uh, normal leaflet motion restored on imaging three months later. The France TAVI registry was another prospective multi-center registry that was done in France that looked to identify predictors of mortality as well as valve dysfunction post-TAVR. In this registry, over 11,000 patients were analyzed. And interestingly enough, they found that oral anticoagulation at discharge was significantly associated with mortality. But they also found that oral anticoagulation at discharge was also protective against bioprosthetic valve dysfunction. And just of note, the most common indication for oral anticoagulation in this registry was atrial fibrillation. Okay, so those registries and other non-randomized studies really paved the way for the Galileo trial, which was published just earlier this year in New England Journal of Medicine. The Galileo trial compared a Rivaroxaban-based regimen with an antiplatelet regimen in patients post-TAVR. This was a randomized, open-label, multi-center study that looked at 1,644 patients who had undergone TAVR. These patients were randomized to Rivaroxaban 10 milligrams a day plus low-dose aspirin for three months 
followed by just Rivaroxaban 10 milligrams a day, or Clopidogrel 75 milligrams a day plus low-dose aspirin for three months, followed by just low-dose aspirin monotherapy. And most importantly, I want to point out that we are just looking at DVT prophylaxis dosing of Rivaroxaban. This is um, of 10 milligrams a day. So any patients that had an indication for a long-term anticoagulation, such as atrial fibrillation, DVT, pulmonary embolisms, all those patients were excluded from Galileo. Unfortunately, Galileo was terminated early due to safety concerns. By the time or when, when the trial was terminated, 183 patients or 42% of the planned 440 patients had reached their primary efficacy outcome. So diving into Galileo in a little bit more detail, if you look at the two, looking at the two arms, they were pretty well evenly matched, especially when you're thinking of characteristics that may increase your risk for valve thrombosis that have been shown in previous studies. So in terms, you know, male, congestive heart failure, NYJ functional class three or four, GFR, um, in terms of post-haver characteristics, aortic valve area, mean aortic valve gradient, and left ventricular ejection fraction. Overall, between the two arms, they were pretty well evenly matched. So now, looking at the outcomes of Galileo, the primary efficacy outcome was looking at the composite of death from any cause or thromboembolic complications, which included stroke, myocardial infarction, symptomatic valve thrombosis, systemic embolism, DVT, or PE. As you can see, there was a statistically higher number of patients in the Rivaroxaban arm who had met the primary outcome, efficacy outcome as opposed to in the antiplatelet arm. The primary safety outcome was looking at the composite of life-threatening, disabling, or major bleeding. And as you can see here in this confidence interval, it was not statistically significant, but numerically there were higher rates of bleeding in the Rivaroxaban arm than in the antiplatelet arm. The secondary efficacy outcome, which looked at the composite of death from cardiovascular causes or thromboembolic events, if you look at the confidence interval on the right, this was not statistically significant, but numerically there were higher rates of the secondary efficacy outcome in the Rivaroxaban arm as well. And so this is why Galileo was stopped early. But I wanna point out, since only 42% of the planned 440 patients actually met the primary efficacy outcome, these outcomes are not powered. Okay, so from Galileo, we have learned that Rivaroxaban is associated with a higher risk of death or thromboembolic complications and bleeds. However, something to keep in mind when you're looking at Galileo was, yes, there were a higher number of deaths in the Rivaroxaban group, but interestingly enough, these deaths were not attributable to thromboembolic complications or bleeds. In fact, they weren't even really attributable to cardiovascular death. The increase in mortality was primary, primarily driven by non-cardiovascular death. And if you actually look at the cause of death of these patients, it was primarily cancer and respiratory failure. Furthermore, there was an extremely high rate of early study drug discontinuation. 
37.1% of patients in the rivaroxaban arm and 23.6% of patients in the antiplatelet arm stopped their therapies before the end of the trial. And just something that I think was interesting was the primary efficacy outcome, which again is looking at the composite of death from any cause or thromboembolic complications was not actually statistically significant when you look at it um, in the on-treatment analysis. So unfortunately, due to all of these limitations, we are unable to make any conclusions on the benefit of anticoagulation for the prevention of subclinical valve thrombosis. Furthermore, we are unable to make any conclusions on the efficacy and safety of rivaroxaban in this patient population. Okay, so the Galileo 4D study was actually a sub-study of the Galileo trial, which looked to evaluate the effect of rivaroxaban on leaflet thickening and leaflet motion abnormalities. In, within Galileo 4D, they included 231 of the patients that were included in Galileo. And as you can see, 115 of them were in the rivaroxaban arm and 116 of them were in the antiplatelet arm and they all underwent cardiac CT scan three months later. The primary outcome of Galileo 4D was actually looking at the percent of patients with at least one leaflet with, uh, with one valve leaflet with reduced motion. Now, as you can see in terms of the results, a significantly lower percentage of patients who were on rivaroxaban had met this outcome. And so the authors of Galileo 4D concluded that a rivaroxaban-based antithrombotic strategy was more effective than an antiplatelet strategy in preventing subclinical leaflet motion abnormalities. Okay, so what is going on here? We have the Galileo trial, which showed us that patients on rivaroxaban had significantly higher rates of non-cardiovascular death. They also had numerically higher rates of bleeding, cardiovascular death, and thromboembolic complications. But we have the Galileo 4D sub-study that showed that patients on rivaroxaban had significantly lower rates of subclinical leaflet motion abnormalities. So all I can really tell you is that you cannot equate clinical outcomes with surrogate outcomes. So clinical outcomes, which is what Galileo was looking at, which is mortality, thromboembolic complications, and bleeding, is not the same as surrogate outcomes, which is looking at leaflet abnormalities on imaging in patients who are asymptomatic. Okay, so some further, um, we may see some more data on this in the next few years. We have the ADAPT-TABR trial that will be looking at anticoagulant versus dual antiplatelet therapy for preventing leaflet thrombosis and cerebral embolization after transcatheter valve replacement. We also have the Redox-TABI trial that will be looking at endoxaban for, uh, for subclinical leaflet thrombosis as well. So going back to our guidelines, if you remember the 2017 focus update from AHA said that anticoagulation with a vitamin K antagonist is reasonable for three months in patients post-TAVR. However, the data that has come out since the publication of this update really does not support this. And at this time, no further recommendation can be made in regards to whether or not patients should be anticoagulated 
to prevent valve thrombosis unless they have an indication for a long-term anticoagulation. And so at this point, I would personally recommend to follow the recommend or the guidelines of European Society of Cardiology instead. Okay, so going back to our patient case, if you remember, this was a 73-year-old female with a past medical history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. She undergoes TAVR for severe symptomatic aortic stenosis with a 23-millimeter transcatheter aortic valve. After the procedure, the patient is only started on aspirin 81 milligrams daily in addition to her other home medications. The interventional cardiologist asks your opinion on if the patient should also be started on an anticoagulant to prevent valve thrombosis. So in terms of the answer, really, um, anticoagulation in addition to aspirin 81 milligrams daily for the prevention of valve thrombosis post-haver really should not be started in this patient um, based on data that has been published since the AJACC guidelines came out in 2017. Um, at this point, it is reasonable to use aspirin 81 milligrams daily monotherapy for, um, for this patient's antithrombotic regimen. And then just of note, um, in my practice, and, and all, actually all of our practices, none of us are actually using or seeing anyone use anticoagulation for patients um, for the prevention of subclinical lethal thrombosis if, um, unless they have another indication for long-term anticoagulation as well. Okay, so some key takeaways from this section. What we do know right now is that subclinical leaflet thrombosis is a common finding in patients post-TAVR. And so this, again, is looking at reduced leaflet motion or, or thickening on imaging, but in patients who are asymptomatic, meaning they're not showing any signs of valve dysfunction. At this time, routine anticoagulation post-TAVR is not recommended without a compelling indication, such as atrial fibrillation or DVT. What we don't know right now is that to what degree does subclinical leaflet thrombosis actually influence outcomes? If patients have this imaging finding, but they don't have symptoms, what does that mean for them in the years to come in terms of valve longevity, stroke, or even mortality? And then finally, does preventing subclinical leaflet thrombosis with anticoagulation improve outcomes? And if so, how long should it be continued for and at what dose? And even what anticoagulant should be used? Should it be warfarin versus a DOAC? These are all questions that we don't know answers to. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.